So a couple of uh, these are these four, uh, as I said, they're learning objectives uh, for the continuing education participants, and they're and they're quite relevant to all of us, I think. The how mindfulness meditation supports recovery. That when I am when I go into a treatment center, which I do from time to time. And I'm dealing with people who are, you know, right off the street. They're right out. They're, you know, newly in recovery, just working on it. And I'm going to teach them meditation, which they probably didn't come there for and might be kind of confused or wondering why they should do that. I tell them that there are two immediate benefits or that, uh, on pretty clear uh, outcomes that we can get from practicing meditation as it relates to our recovery. And the first is the, the most obvious thing, which is to be able to calm ourselves down and to get relaxed, to have some quiet time. That, you know, uh, the things that drive us to addiction are very often the agitation and restlessness, the anxiousness, the, uh, and all those feelings that uh, get uh, that are kind of running on this high level of energy and angst in our lives. And that if we, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, sit with ourselves and breathe consciously, that that in itself helps the nervous system and helps the body to be less uh, stressed, less, less stirred up. So there's the calming. And then the second piece is that when we start to pay attention to our own thoughts in meditation, that we have insights about ourselves and that we start to be able to catch ourselves falling into the types of thought patterns that result in taking the actions into relapse to using start to see oh i like even something as obvious as i need a drink right or i can't take this you know or how am i going to do that you know that we kind of we if we see our thoughts a little bit it's not that difficult to kind of question them and say I don't have to have a drink, you know. I've, many times I have not had a drink, yeah. um, and or the, as well as the "I'm such an asshole" thoughts, "I'm such an idiot" thoughts. Oh wow, you're really beating yourself up. Just to be able to have those perspectives, right? So helpful in recovery, uh, in in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. <laughs> Hopefully, the end just means when you die. So that, that's kind of the simple thing that I try to explain when I'm trying to offer meditation to newcomers. I just try and, and, you know, I don't want to try to give them the eightfold path and all this stuff. You know, it's like, well, if you can calm down and kind of notice your own thoughts a little bit, that's a, a really good starting point with practice. Um, I talked a bit today about mindfulness working with emotions, but uh, it's a a 
theme in my own teaching because, uh, like most teachers, I teach what I need, you know, and I teach what's been important to me. And I, in, in one breath at a time, I, I kind of describe the evolution of my understanding of this. Uh, how in one of my first retreats, uh, both of the main teachers I was working with, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, told me that I needed to focus more on my emotions in my practice. As I had learned meditation in this very systematic way, that was somewhat mechanical. It was just like following your breath, you have a thought, note the thought, come back to the breath, and it was kind of all from the neck up. And um, didn't really get to the heart and didn't really integrate the feelings. And so I first started to learn to just feel feelings in my body. And that in itself was a, a revelation. And that kind of opened up a whole world of, of exploration that I, that I still find fascinating because, first of all, because it's really hard to define emotions. I'm, I'm sure that the professionals in the psychology world sort of have definitions of them. But as, a, as an experience... It's really hard to describe what it is, what an emotion is. They're very strange. The more you look at them, I think, the harder it becomes to really define them. So I've come to see emotions as being more energetic experiences than psychological experiences. So that is, they're felt more in the body as movement, as feel, as a felt thing. But it's my mind that labels them. It's my mind that says, this is depression, or this is anxiety. Um, if, I, if I feel them as energies, you know, what I would call depression would be, oh, this is kind of a heavy, dark feeling. Anxiety, oh, it's kind of an edgy, shaky feeling. The problem with them, as feelings themselves, as raw feelings, they're just unpleasant. Uh, the, those types of feelings, not all, obviously not all emotions, but these kind of uh, distressing emotions are unpleasant. But it, it's really when my mind gets involved with them that they become problems. When I have a feeling, you know, the, no, the dr November dread that I was talking about, when I have that feeling and then I think, oh, shit. Here it comes. I'm getting depressed. And then I think, oh, what's the point? You know, this is a waste of time. I, I'm no, whatever the story is, it starts to go. And then you start this feedback loop where the feeling triggers a thought, and that negative thought triggers more bad feelings. And they start feeding back to each other until they become this all-encompassing experience, which then becomes this problem that we call depression, where there might just be a feeling of sadness and a negative thought. And those are like, eh, you know, ugh, ugh, bad day, you know, bad mood, whatever, right? But when they're like, and then they start going, and then it's for 
days and then you seem to wake up and it's like already like i had this friend in the program who said you know his mind started to generate negative thoughts 10 minutes before he woke up every morning so when he woke up it was like already in the negativity so that it starts to be like that and then there's this thing and then you're then you're in trouble right uh, because those states uh are uh that's when medication is called for oftentimes, you know, to break out of it, to get to like normality where you can just be with feelings again. Um, but so, so coming back to meditation, how does this work with this? So this is what I teach. And many of you who have sat significant periods with me know, have heard me so many times say, how are you feeling? What notice your mood? What you know? Feel if a, if a thought comes up, notice how the thought resonates in the body. When I have that thought, how do I feel? And can I have that feeling and not make up a story about it? Can I not even have to name it? You know? Can I hold it like gently, like oh, mm, okay, yeah. Like when you stub your toe. You don't build a story around it. I mean, you might be like, oh, that was kind of stupid. Why didn't I notice that chair? But you don't sort of go, oh, my toe, you know, it's just such a bad toe and it hurts so much. And I just really, I, I just really want to, I think if I could cut my toes off, I, life would be so much better. And, and, oh, and then as you're thinking that your toe starts hurting more and you're like, God, this toe, I can't stand it, you know. It doesn't happen, you know. So if you can think of like a, an emotion that's just like a stubbed toe, you know, be like, oh, yeah, all right. Amazing how that. So uh, there's mindfulness. You have to be aware that the emotion is arising rather than, you know, it's there. You know, the way I was conditioned was I'm having a feeling, I need to think about it. I need to figure it out and I need to try to get rid of it. And maybe I should have a drink or, you know, whatever, you know, it was just in this constant struggle with it. it like that had, something had to be done. And, and, and I, because I wasn't even really aware that I was having the feeling, I just was knew that I wanted to feel differently. That's all I knew. I wanted. I, I need to feel differently. I didn't really feel it. I just, it was just a total aversion. And so just to be, Oh, I'm having a feeling. That's the beginning of recovery, right? I'm an alcoholic. Oh, that's the beginning of recovery. So I'm having a feeling. And then knowing that, having the cognitive awareness that it's okay to have a feeling and that nothing actually has to be done about it right now. And then what happens if I really have this feeling? What if I breathe into that feeling? Okay, there it is. And I don't build a story. Then I might like just decide to call a friend or go for a walk or do, you know, go back to the book I was reading or you know, it just kind of like it's just a thing. It came, it went. It doesn't become this all-encompassing thing that that captures me. So it begins and this is why this is where meditation can be so valuable and what I really recommend and again that as you're meditating you know you notice your thoughts that's kind of easy in the sense that you know it might be like five minutes into the thought but you'll notice it. it's like oh i'm having a thought right then ask yourself 
what am I feeling? What feeling came along with this thought? Breathe into that. And then just come back to your breath. You know? But take a little time to start practicing as in your meditation. Practicing feeling what you're feeling. And you might not be able to identify it. If, if you're like me, in the beginning you'll be like, what, where, who, what? You know, I just no, didn't know what it even meant. But after a while, I started to, oh, right, oh, yeah. It's, it, you, know, and you, you know, at first I kind of thought, okay, feelings are here. Then I was like, well, feelings are here. And then you start to realize, no, feelings are here. Well, feelings are there. They're, they show up in all kinds of parts of your body. You know, when you blush. That's a feeling, right? It's an emotion. Your, your face gets red, right? Your ears. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll feel excitement in your shoulders or in your back. And, uh, so start to just practice that as you're me- in your meditation. Just rather, I mean, this is what Jack Cornfield said to me. He said, your practice is to feel. I didn't, that freaked me out when he said that. I was like, I thought my practice was to pay attention to my breath. Uh, but it was just opened up the door, this doorway of practice. That was good. So I don't, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do, but I'll, I'll do something else. Uh, let me talk about the steps a little bit. So that, this will be kind of the my uh, briefly, because obviously, twelve steps. Um, and, and this is kind of for people uh, for people who aren't as familiar with what I do, and because uh, a lot of you have heard much of this before. But when I see the steps as a process. That uh, the 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 twelve steps describe a process. They attempt to describe a process and make suggestions about how to move through this process. But the steps themselves are not exactly the process, and they and they. I think that they can be uh, understood on, on a lot of levels uh, that aren't necessarily, that actually can get obscured by the language of the steps. And, and a lot of my work is to try to uh, uncover uh, the meaning of the steps, at least. And obviously that's my opinion of what the meaning is, but, but uh, you know, trying to find something that's kind of universal about them. So step one, is really this admission of this of our problem, and uh, uh, again, in, in order to solve a problem, you must recognize that you have a problem. So that that's the starting point. But interestingly, step one does not say that we stopped. You know, for, it's written for Alcoholics Anonymous. Doesn't say we stopped drinking. So I'm not sure when, uh, in terms of the steps, it's implied that you're going to stop. But I always understood that step one included that I also stopped drinking at that time when I took step one, whatever your addiction is, that that's like when you actually address it. Uh, and, and so obviously that's the, probably the biggest step. I don't know if the, obviously, but certainly that's a huge step. Step two is, I mentioned before, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step two, my understanding of it is that we recognize that it's possible to change and it's possible to recover. So it's about this possibility that previously we had not realized there was a possibility to change. You know, in our addiction, we either didn't think we could stop or we didn't, weren't interested in it, uh, you know, couldn't uh, 
figure that out. And, or, or we thought that we had to control ourselves. And the step is trying to say it's not, it's not an ego-based effort. And I say ego-based for an important reason, because when step three says we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, it can sound like, okay, God, please fix my life. Okay, good. And as though something's supposed to happen. But I don't think God, in this sense, is talking about some magical power that's going to intervene. Rather, I think it's step that we're talking about, for lack of a better term, a lower self and a higher self, or ego self or non-ego self. So the non-ego self is guided by principles, is guided by wisdom, is guided by love, none of which have to do with ego, right? As ego is guided by, I want it. (laughs) That's all it's driven by. Ego is all about self. I want it, and, and I want to fix it, and I want to control it. And all of that is what we have to let go of to have step three work. And obviously, we don't let go of it 100%, or we'd be all be enlightened. But, but we're engaging this process in which we realize that we have to make a different way, we have to make a, a different way of approaching our lives that involves not always acting on our self-centered interest and our, our wishes. So we have to ask these other questions. What would be a more skillful thing to do? Which is why step three is about intention and action. So we've been doing kind of a step three today. Um, we turn our will and our lives over. Our will is our intention. And we try to align our intention with the Dharma in Buddhism is why we have to kind of study the Dharma, but that's what the Eightfold Path and the, and the, the precepts and the right mindfulness and right, right view. So once we've kind of gotten to this point where we've chosen a different path, we've made a decision to turn our lives, that's actually a good way to think of it, then we are faced with the fact that our lives had been going in a different direction, and by just making a decision to turn them doesn't change everything. It doesn't necessarily change anything. That, and so the steps four through nine, the inventory and the amends, are in a sense trying to uproot our karma, uproot the negative uh, habits, mental and behavioral, and start to act differently. So step four is an examination of karma. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. How did I get here? What are the roots of this problem? What, you know, what is the conditioning, the karmic conditioning that created me as an addict? And then step five is sharing that so that it's made really explicit in our minds. So it's not something that we just kind of like, oh, yeah, we're kind of hiding away. We're making it very explicit. And there's kind of an implicit agreement in sharing our inventory, that we are now going to deal with it. That's why we share it. And so steps six and seven are dealing with it. Step six is we are entirely ready to have God remove our defects of character. Step seven is we humbly asked him to uh, remove our shortcomings. I might have gotten a word or two wrong there. But the idea here is that now we want to let go of the negative patterns, and we now want to <coughs> adopt positive patterns. So this is, in Buddhism, right effort. 
We're going to abandon the negative behaviors, the negative thought patterns, the negative speech patterns, all that destructive behavior. We're going to cultivate and develop positive patterns in our lives. And that through that, rather than through God intervening and fixing our lives, through the karmic action that we take, thoughts, words, and deeds are how we create karma, through, through changing our thoughts, words, and deeds, we're going to change our lives. And by definition, we're going to change ourselves. We're going to become different people who operate differently because we, we think, speak, and act differently now. And then steps eight and nine are about making amends for the harm we've done to people. And, that, and so this is the, where we can say six and seven are about sort of the internal personal. Eight and nine are about the interpersonal and the social world, our interactions, our relationships with people, uh, which is you know, the root of a lot of our pain and a lot of the, our struggles. So once we've gotten through that process, then the last three steps are about maintaining and developing all the qualities that have been worked on. Step 10 is a reiteration of the inventory and amends process. We continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So that's steps four, five, eight, and nine right there. Step 11 is when we engage in, suggested we engage in the spiritual practice. Uh, beautifully constructed step because it's it's saying we're not doing this for ourselves, which manifests as well in step 12, but it says you know, we prayed only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. So we're not praying to get money or to get pleasure or to get what we want. What we're trying to do is get clarity about how to act, how to what the next right thing to do is. So we could say we're trying to cultivate and develop our own intuitive wisdom, which is what I call the, you know, God's will. Um, I mean, God's will is very lofty language, and and for me, it's dangerous language, because when we start to think that God is speaking to us, we often are in, have stopped taking our meds, basically, you know. <laughs> so. Um, but when we think of it as I'm just trying to get clarity. I'm just trying to see things more clearly. That, yeah, we can kind of... And, and of course, that often includes, I think I've got it figured out, I think I'll ask someone else what they think, you know, which is why we have sponsors, and in my case, a wife. Um, and then step 12 is this beautiful culmination that points to the idea that through this process, we've woken up spiritually, uh, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, what did we do? We tried to carry this message to others of our ilk. Well, the the message there is that the work that we've done is not for selfish purposes. That when one has a spiritual awakening, what one is motivated and inspired to do is to help others. That service is the ultimate expression of spiritual awakening. That's a pretty powerful statement and one that guides... uh, the 12-step programs, and, and certainly guides Buddhism as well. Uh, and, it, and again, it implies this, uh, the letting go of self, letting go of ego, letting go of attachment there. And then the f- final uh, line in step 12, and we practice these principles in all our affairs. I always think of that as the thing that uh, closes all the loopholes. 
in case that you thought there was a time when you could kind of like uh, let it slip and slide. No, we're going to, this is what we do, whether at home, whether at work, whether we're with friends, you know, we don't kind of uh, take breaks from, from this life. So you could say this, just to tie it in with Buddhism, Buddhism, the, the Buddha's Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which also add up to 12, uh, it describes something similar. It's not, it's not an exact parallel, but the Buddha starts with the truth of suffering, acknowledging the truth of suffering. And this is exactly what step one is doing, acknowledging that there's suffering. And and then the second noble truth says that suffering is caused from clinging. So that's addiction. And that the end of suffering is, third noble truth, is letting go. And then this eightfold path, which gives us all this guidance in, in living. And very much about eth- living ethically, living spiritually, living wisely. The same things that the steps are doing. The steps are more specific about things like inventory and amends all that, but uh, all of that is implied in Buddhism, which is about honesty. I mean, mindfulness itself is a kind of existential honesty. You know, being honest with ourselves about uh, what we're thinking and feeling and saying, how we're acting. Um, and, you know, so there, the idea of doing inventory, one of the things that the teachers on the longer retreats have discovered is that that. It, it's actually a natural thing to, for people to do what they call a life review when they're on a long retreat. Well, it's an inventory, right? So it's a, it's a natural unfolding here is to really investigate. In the, in the monasteries, the, Buddha, the monks, uh, each month, they have to review all the precepts and, and confess publicly, or at least, I'm not sure if it's public or to their preceptor, but they have to confess what precepts they've broken. So again, the amends is is part of this. Uh, it's something the Buddha recommended. He talked uh, about that. He, he makes it really clear that uh, the, that uh, admitting that you've made a mistake, uh, it, that that's, uh, that actually there's a kind of purification that happens with that. And, and uh, he says you should be easy to admonish you know, being able to take criticism and admit mistakes. He says this is much more more important than not making mistakes. You know, it's like it's very good if you make, a, 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 you know, your amends. Uh, but the the worst thing you can do is like make a mistake and then not admit it. You know? So, well, I've uh, much more in all along all those lines, and this is why I've written five books. So. Um, So uh, this was a lot of fun, actually, for me. I I, I love getting to do this. It's a a great gift in my life. And and, uh, the fact that you all come is great. And one of the things that's really great about it is that there's people in offices here who look at the numbers of people that come. (laughs) And the only way that these kind of things keep happening is that you guys keep showing up. And so uh, you're doing it for, for all of us that, that we do this together and that we, uh, have our, we have our place here at Spirit Rock. We've established that over the last 15 years. Um, and um, 
you know, what we do is really respected. Whenever I run into teacher, the, the teachers from the teacher council, I'm not on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council, but whenever I run into them, they, they tell me how much they appreciate the work that, that I do and that we do together, how much they appreciate that Spirit Rock is a home for people in recovery, um, that we've been able to do this. So thank you and, and thank yourself and keep coming back. Uh, I didn't know I was going there, but that was. <laughs> so let's just close with a short uh, loving kindness and appreciation and uh, dedication. Now, a day like this actually takes a tremendous amount of energy. You'll probably feel it later if you don't feel it now. to be kind to yourself. Don't go out drinking tomorrow night. Just breathing now back into your body and again, appreciating your own effort. Sign up and Show up, invest time and money, energy, heart, investing in yourself, in your recovery, in your spiritual growth. This is an act of love. Having a sense of Just connecting to the part of you that cares about yourself and that cares about others. Sometimes we can forget how much we care. And it's hard to care in this world. But the Buddha says we should radiate loving kindness over the entire world. Just imagine that you're radiating out loving kindness to everyone in this room and throughout the building, up the hill to the retreat up there, all the staff around the campus. Then radiating out over these hills and touching the wild turkeys and the deer, the animals that live in the ground and the birds, the sky and the trees, radiating outwards to the oceans, to our beautiful, precious ocean that needs our love so badly needs our care. And across the earth and all the people on this earth, those who are happy and those who are sad, those who are healthy and those who are ill, those who are free and those who are living in oppression, and those in prison, those who are hungry and those who are filled. All beings on earth and the earth itself 
surrounded and fused with love. May we find ways, each of us, to share this love in our lives. Keep it awake in our hearts, even as the world creates so much turmoil around us. May we be the source of light and love that changes this world, helps this world to realize the true path of love and wisdom. May all beings find wisdom. May all beings find love. May all beings feel their interconnection with each other, with the planet, with the universe. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.